You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we are continuing our studies in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and if you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page 1179, 1179, we're coming to the end of the first chapter, although these verses tonight are the opening section of a completely new progress of thought in the letter. Paul has been greeting the Philippians, he's been telling them how he prays for them, uh, and then he's been speaking to them about his own situation. He is in prison. He wants them to know that the Lord is sovereignly working through him and that many members of the Praetorian Guard have heard the gospel. And he himself is rejoicing, and he wants the Philippians to be able to share in that joy. But now he's moving from uh, greeting them and describing his situation to address their situation. And he does this from chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 4 and verse 1, and then he comes to his final words of exhortation and greeting. So, this evening, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you, in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." A number of years ago, uh, I'm not a sightseer, I've been many places, but I see uh, conference rooms, prayer meetings, beds in hotels, uh, churches, and uh, airplanes, and I tend not to sightsee. But a number of years ago, uh, I, I gave in to an invitation to go to Israel. Uh, I'd had invitations before, but I'm not a sightseer and so I didn't go, but this was an invitation to speak at a conference, and so that meant uh, flights, hotels, prayer meetings, conferences, another flight, and home. But on this occasion, I had an enormous privilege. Uh, a man who was at the conference uh, offered to take me on a, a day tour of the great archaeological sites in Israel. And he happened uh, to work for the government department that oversaw all the uh, sites from antiquity 
in Israel. In fact, he was the man who, if you were building a new house and they dug up a bone or something that looked old, then he had to be called and he could come along and say to the builders, that's it for the next 18 months, and so you might be left homeless. He was a man of pretty considerable power and I think was not open to blackmail. And one of the sites he took me to memorably was an old Roman town. Um, Most of you know I've lived a a lot of my life in the United States where they will show you antebellum houses in the south, and you ask, which bellum are we talking about? You discover it's actually fairly recent. Um, You may be living in an older house yourself. Um, And there are many old things in Scotland. But when you, when you go to the Middle East, there are really old things. And this Roman town um, that reminded me of some American chain store in this sense, once you've seen one Walmart, you've seen every Walmart. You know, once you've been into Sainsbury's, you can go into any Sainsbury's, I presume, and know that there'll be the veggies here, and there'll be the cabinets here, and if you want stationery or clothes, it will be there. And that's how the Romans built these towns and settlements, so that uh, wherever you were in the world, if you were in a Roman town, you were able to live like a Roman. Uh, you, You could go from one to the other, and the baths, not an unimportant part of Uh, life in antiquity would be here, and the temple would be here, and the the theater would be here, and you would immediately know your way around. You wouldn't need to consult Google Maps or the like. And the Romans loved this imprinting everywhere they went. They loved this imprinting of Rome, so that wherever you were, you would know this was Rome, to such an extent that they created little colonies. And Philippi was one of these colonies. The people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. They lived by Roman law. They were taught to think like Romans, to live like Romans so that even although you weren't in Rome, you lived as though you were in Rome. Now, what's the point of that travelogue? Well, it's this. Paul is now doing what he frequently does in his letters. He's said something about the work of God and the grace of God, and he's now going to bring to the Philippians some applications to their own Christian living. And usually when he does that, you'll notice the language that he uses here is the language of Christian conduct. Whatever happens, he says, the New International International Version has, conduct yourselves, live this way, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Usually when he says that kind of thing, he uses a verb for walking. You walk the Christian way. You walk in the way of the Lord. 
But here he uses a quite different verb. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says to the Philippians, now you need to understand that your citizenship is in heaven. And he's writing to Philippians in Philippi, a Roman colony where they have learned to live in Philippi as though they were actually in Rome because they are Roman citizens. And he's using that picture from the contemporary world order as a way of helping these Christians to understand the basic framework of reference for living the Christian life. And so, we might translate this perfectly legitimately. Now, he says, whatever happens, live as citizens in a manner worthy of being citizens of the kingdom of God. Live as citizens. You, you live here but you don't belong here. He wants to see imprinted on the very way they think about living the Christian life this notion that they are citizens. Yes, they are citizens of this world, some of them perhaps citizens of the Roman Empire, but they live in that context as citizens of another world, citizens of the heavenly world, citizens of the kingdom or the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, the, the, the word that's translated in the New International Version, whatever happens, really just means only. Um, you remember when you were young and you were going out to do something for the first time or going away from home for the first time and your mother raised her menacing finger? It was in my case my mother, maybe it was your father. Now, there is one thing I want you to remember. And that's how Paul is introducing this whole section. He's saying, now, just remember this one thing. Remember where your citizenship lies. And work out in this world this basic self-sense of identification, sense of identity to be a trailer for the conference this coming weekend that one of the most fundamental things you need to know and a fundamental sense in which you need to think about yourself is this. As a Christian, yes, in one sense, I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom, but my most fundamental citizenship is not here. My most fundamental basic citizenship as a Christian, my basic identity as a Christian, is no longer that I'm Scottish or English or American or Greek or whatever. My most basic identity, the most fundamental way I think about myself, is that I am a citizen of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a given to us as Christians. And it's hugely important. It's always been hugely important. It's incredibly important today. I presume the reason why our conference this weekend is on identity, because that is one of the great crises, social and moral crises, of the times in which we are living. And the reason for that is when you remove God from the scene, 
You remove the notion that has governed so much of Western civilization from the scene that we are made as the image of God. And if people no longer think of themselves as the image of God, what do they need to do? At the end of the day, they're just a bundle of biological phenomena, and they need to create their own identity. They need to choose their own identity. They need to find their own identity. They are, in that sense, lost and seeking an identity, and you, and you see that everywhere. Even in, the, even in the beautiful world of classic FM, where nothing ever goes wrong and you never hear any ugly music, they are running an advert for Dove at the moment. And the, the tagline in the advert for Dove is, be your beautiful self. Now, why is it that some of the most beautiful people in the world still get plastic surgery and do Botox or, you know, whatever else and have their teeth straightened? Because even the most beautiful people in the world, when they look in the mirror, realize they are not at the end of the day, so beautiful after all. So, what if I'm not beautiful? What's the point of Dove or anyone else saying to me, be your beautiful self? Eventually, all that produces in me is a sense of absolute despair, and the more governments and educational authorities spend money and effort and transformation of the syllabuses of our educational programs for young people to persuade them that they really are beautiful, they're princesses and princes, and they can do anything they want, they don't realize that it's… Uh, it's a recipe for disaster. And here, think about this as a, if you're a young Christian, think about this, that in distinction from that world into which you are catapulted as a Christian believer, of course you don't yet know everything about your life, but you know this. You know where you belong. You know whose you are. You know what your citizenship is. And so, this is, this is picture language that Paul is implanting in the minds of these Philippians, drawing it from a, something that they're very familiar with, and he's saying, now, think about your Christian life that way, that you're a citizen of this glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you think about yourself that way, what does it do to you? Well, it creates a sense of dignity. As we'll see, it gives you a marvelous protection, and it gives you a, a sense of destiny as well. And so, he's speaking to these Philippians, and as he, as he does this, as he, as he kind of raises his apostolic finger in a very gentle uh, way and says, now, please get this one thing. Live your Christian life as someone who is a citizen of another world order altogether. Let's follow what he says as far as we're able to do that. And first of all, to notice in verses 27 and 28, the description he gives us now, citizens of the kingdom, the empire of Jesus Christ, he describes the lifestyle to which we are called. Live a life, he says, conduct yourself, live as a citizen 
in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, obviously, I probably don't need to say this, but let me say it. Obviously, he doesn't mean here, live in such a way that you will be worthy of, you will earn your right to the gospel. He's not speaking about earning anything. He's speaking about expressing something. He's saying, now, you are a citizen, so live your life in a way that befits a citizen. Live your life in a way that's worthy of the name. I remember hearing that uh, there was an occasion when uh, the royal chaplain in Buckingham Palace years and years ago saw uh, the mother of the two royal princesses seeing them off in a car to obviously to go to a party, and she, she raised the royal finger, and she said, now, remember, girls, royal princesses, royal manners. Remember who you are. And this essentially is all that Paul is saying to them. Remember who you are. But we should notice that he's, in this context especially, he's saying it to them as a, as a group, not just as isolated individuals. And that comes out very clearly. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's addressing the Christians in Philippi together with the elders and the deacons. He's, he's speaking to them as a fellowship so that, as it were, when they went out, they they didn't go home silently and say, I need to work that out. They, they looked at each other and said, how, how do we do this? How will we help one another to do this? So, this is a we thing. This is for us together to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And where does he place his emphasis? Well, we'll have to return to this later on in our studies in Philippians, but he places emphasis here by urging them to stand together, to fight together, and to resist intimidation together. So, he says, I want to know that you stand firm in one spirit, that you contend as one man for the faith of the gospel, and that you're not frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, what's the point of this emphasis here? Well, it is, of course, that the, the kingdom of God, the city of God in Philippi, right from the very start, has been under attack. Remember the story in Acts chapter 16, the hostility to the proclamation of the gospel, the hostility to what the Apostle Paul did in the exorcism of the slave girl, the hostility to the events that surrounded the, the conversion of the jailer, and the way he was hustled out of town, the way he was, he was beaten up, despite the fact that he was a Roman citizen in a Roman colony. And that's not just, that's not just a, like an individual thing for the Apostle Paul. Paul realizes that it's been this way since the promise of Genesis 3.15, isn't it? God places enmity between the seed of the woman 
ultimately fulfilled in Christ and then in the church, and the seed of the serpent. And that's the context. Remember how Jesus puts it? This is surely applicable to what happened in Philippi. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will seek to overthrow it, but they'll not be able to prevail. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus builds His kingdom in the midst of enemy-occupied territory. And the more fully He builds that kingdom, the more clearly that kingdom is going to come under attack. So, what's important when the kingdom comes under attack? Or, or to put it just in terms of this letter, or St. Peter's. What's important for us as a church if the gospel comes under attack? If in some ways we we experience St. Peter's coming under attack, either a as a congregation or through specific individuals, which is usually the way. What's important? Well, what's important here, says Paul, is is our unity, our fellowship with one another. And so, he says, I want you to stand together. I want you to contend for the gospel as though you were one man, and I want you to resist intimidation. What's to me very interesting about this is that in some ways these three exhortations reflect the three ways in which the early church in Acts chapters 3 through 6 came under attack. Intimidation, in which the church stood as one and were united all together in prayer, and then the the efforts of the enemy to divide over the the mercy ministry, the the potential division between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers, and, and the potential to divide over the position that was sought by Ananias and Sapphira. And what Paul is saying here is, the church is strong only when our fellowship is both consistent and sweet. Um, Remember how Paul says we need to take the shield of faith, and the the noun he uses there, the noun uh, is the noun, you know, uh, I don't know, in Sunday school, you you maybe see the Roman soldier with his little shield. That's not the shield at all. Those of you who have seen Gladiator, Mentally raise your hand if you've seen Gladiator. Remember the opening sequence? Remember these huge shields? Uh, This shield, the word that's used for the shield is related to the word for a door. It was almost five feet high, and it worked only because the soldiers huddled together and put up their shields so that these flaming darts would be extinguished against the wet uh, cloth or skin that was on the door shield. And that's a similar picture Paul is, is drawing here, that the unity of the church is tremendously important. It's not only beautiful, but it's important. 
In fact, it's because it's so beautiful that it is often so frequently under attack. Isn't that true? What is it that Satan attacks in so many churches? It's the unity of the fellowship. Why? Because actually it's, it's, it is so easy. Um, you know, most of us, you know, most of us here look like human beings. We've been in families, some of us in big families, and we know the, the joy of a day out can be spoiled by one mumbling, miserable, complaining child who doesn't want to play. And it's the same in the church. It just takes one miserable, moaning member of the church that's apt alliterations, artful aid that has just come to me in the moment. One miserable moaning member, yeah, 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 to spoil everybody's fun in serving Christ. Do you wonder why that happens so often? It's because the gates of hell seek to prevail. And why is that so significant? Well, it's related, isn't it, to Jesus' prayer in John 17. In John 17, uh, towards the end, verses 20 to 23, when Jesus' prayer now focuses on us, He's prayed for Himself, He's prayed for the apostles and His contemporaries, and now He's praying for the whole future church. What does He pray for the whole future church? That we will be one. Why does He pray that we will be one? I don't think he's speaking about some formal unity of all having the same kind of buildings, all using the same liturgy, all dressing the same way, all using the same language in our worship. But the spiritual reality of the unity of our fellowship, why is that so important to him? Because in a fragmented world, he says, when this unity that is rooted in and mirrors my unity with you, Father, the fellowship that we have together. When the, church, when the church mirrors that, the church, just by being the church, becomes the most powerful evangelistic instrument in the world. So, I'm praying that they will be kept united in gracious fellowship, so that the world, when the world encounters the church, it's bound to say, where on earth did this come from? And begin to ask questions, begin to experience things it never experienced before. David Ellis won't mind me saying, I don't think, that if you were a non-Christian and you were here on Thursday afternoon, you would have experienced things in all likelihood, you had never seen before, anywhere, except among believers. And this is why he's praying that this lifestyle to which they are called together will be a lifestyle that's marked by this marvelous unity of fellowship in which they stand together. And notice he adds this, because a pretty shrewd minister, the Apostle Paul, if I may say so, he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you, this will be true. You know, when the cat's away, even if the cat wore a dog collar, when the cat's away, you know. I've never forgotten as a young minister, 
picking up the phone one Sunday afternoon as I was thinking about the evening service at which I was preaching and this disembodied voice on the other end of the phone said, would you mind telling me who is preaching at and named the church, which most of you would be able to guess. And I said as calmly as I could, I am. Thank you very much. Click. And I thought to myself two things. One, I don't think I'll see you in church because the main man isn't preaching. This was about 1971 or 1972 when I was a boy in short trousers. And you know the other thing I thought? I know who you are, and I'm going to look and see if you're there. And I was right. Why wasn't he there? It was the same God, same Savior, using the same hymn book, same building, could have sat in the same pew. Service could have lasted roughly the same amount of time. Because when the cat's away, you see? So what's Paul's concern here? Paul's concern here is that they should be the real deal. You know, if all they... You know, sometimes people have said to me in the past, you know, I came to, like the church I used to be in, I came, you know, I came three states to hear you preach and you weren't there. And I would say that's why I wasn't there. You came to hear me. And this is what what concerns him, that even when he's removed from the scene, the reality of their unity should be observably a reality that comes from the Lord Jesus himself, and not because they've had the Apostle Paul with them. Um, You know, for ministers, the lovely thing in some respects could be a danger sign to hear when you come back from wherever that the church didn't miss you as much as we thought we would because of the presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of his people. So, this is the lifestyle to which they are called, a wonderful lifestyle of unity. And he says, so, my friends, he says, don't, verse uh, 28, he says, don't be intimidated. Don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The language he uses here is of being startled, you know, like a horse being startled. And what he's really saying is, remember how we found this in First Peter chapter 4? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. That's what the enemy wants. Oh, you never thought we were so big and so strong and so powerful, and we can do you down. And here's this little church, and it can shrug its shoulders and say, and this is a very important thing, you didn't choose our price. I I have been fascinated by the fact that those who seek to intimidate the church, or perhaps you even experience this yourself as an individual Christian, perhaps uh, you've been intimidated, somebody seeks to intimidate you, they even threaten to, to spoil your reputation, or perhaps you'll lose your job. And they assume you will crumble. Why? Because those are the things that are most important to them. Their position, their reputation, their job, their financial security. And, you know, 
if to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, then you're able to say, at least mentally and to the Lord, to whoever seeks to intimidate you, you just chose the wrong price. You chose entirely the wrong price. You don't think that intimidates me, do you? If to me to live is Christ and to die would be gain. You see, the wonderful, the freedom that this provides for Christian believers. Well, let's look at the second thing that Paul mentions, and we can do this fairly quickly, I think. He speaks about the lifestyle to which they're called, and then he explains to them the significance of the situation they're in. And this is so interesting. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 28. He says, I want you to do this without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Isn't this interesting? You think, where did, where did Paul get this? He's saying when this happens, when the church is living in this gracious fellowship, shoulder to shoulder, contending for the gospel as one, in the love of the Holy Spirit, then that serves as a sign. And it serves as a sign, he says, first of all, to the unbelievers who seek to intimidate you. What's it a sign of? He says it's a sign of their destruction. Why is it a sign of their destruction? Well, he doesn't explain. <laughs> Wish he did. But probably for this reason, that by these tactics, they've been able to destroy anybody else who got in their way. So why is it that they're not able to destroy you? Why is it that you, little Philippian church, are left standing and I am exhausting myself trying to destroy you? And instead of me destroying you, I'm, I'm breaking myself to pieces against you. You know, I probably most of you know this by now because I've probably said it so often. I'm absolutely convinced that the Apostle Paul learned so much about the life of the Christian and the life of the church from his encounters with the martyr Stephen. And that he, he knew this because he had experienced this. That what he was, I think I can use the language appropriately here, what he was hell-bent on doing was destroying Stephen and destroying the church. And he discovered he was actually just in the process of destroying himself as he sought to do so until he found himself uh, bowed down, humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing that he had sought to destroy the indestructible, and actually the only sign that was being given was that he would destroy himself. Or you could think about it this way. If you seek to destroy the only community that can point you to how you can be saved, your sins forgiven, and you can live forever in the presence of God, if you seek to destroy that, then what's left to you? 
but your own destruction. And then on the other hand, you see, he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them by saying that, do not be afraid. And then he's encouraging them by saying, and think about it this way as well, the fact that you're still standing is a sign that God is still working. Remember how he'd said that at the beginning of chapter 1? He said, I'm absolutely convinced that God will bring to completion the good work that He's begun in you. And look, you're still standing. Despite all this opposition, you are still standing. And that's a sign to you. Take encouragement from that sign. Take encouragement that He is in the process marvelously of preserving you and saving you. So, He's calling them to this lifestyle of citizens. He's explaining to them the significance of their faithfulness. And then in the last couple of verses, he's describing for them the fellowship in which they share as they go through difficult experiences. He says, this is a sign to you that you will be saved, and that by God. And then verse 28, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe into Christ, into Him, but also to suffer for Him. And because that's true, you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You see, he's, what he's saying to them is, look, friends, if we've become citizens of the new kingdom of Jesus Christ, the city of God, and if you've been looking to me as a model and example of how Christ builds that city and how He works in the living stones of which that city is composed, what have you seen? Well, you've seen struggle and pain and challenge. You've seen people seeking to intimidate me. You've seen people seeking to destroy me. Don't you see, therefore, what is happening to you? That you are being called to share in that same fellowship that characterizes those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And don't you see this, he says, how did your faith come about in the first place? Lydia, you know, Lydia, the first convert. Lydia, were you sitting at the riverside there thinking, you know, I think today I should trust in Jesus Christ. I, I, I wonder if there's anyone around here who can tell me about Jesus Christ. No, you weren't thinking that at all. But then God sent these, this little disciple band. Paul came. And Paul spoke to you about Christ, and the Lord opened your heart. And then you, you, uh, the, the nameless girl who had been so abused by these wicked men, you knew absolutely nothing about the Lord Jesus. And then as these events unfolded, I exercised those demons, and I set you free from these wicked men. It was the Lord who did that. And you, Philippian jail, the last thing in your mind as you locked the door and threw us into the prison and heard us singing at midnight. Last thing in your mind is, I think I need to get my Bible out and start reading it. It was the Lord who did it. It was the Lord who brought you to faith. Now, it wasn't the Lord who believed. It was you who believed, but it was the Lord who brought you to faith, opened your eyes, softened your heart, moved your will, 
to ask, what must I do to be saved? And you came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you were saved. That's what was described in Acts chapter 16. That's as though he's saying, that's what Luke described there. He says, I want you to understand that if your salvation is a gracious gift of God that He has overseen in His sovereign providence, so is your suffering. He doesn't do the suffering for you any more than He did the believing for you, but He does the work in you, and He provides the circumstances around you that will lead you through suffering lead you through suffering into fellowship with me. And as he's later going to say in chapter 3, lead you through suffering into the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ so that you will be shaped more and more into His likeness and into His image. And you notice where he stresses, this this is so interesting in verse 29, He says, it has been granted to you. I find this fascinating. Now, he could have said, it's been granted to you to suffer, and that would have been completely true. You know, nobody would have been able to stand up and say, Paul, you lose a point in your exam here for bad theology. No, you have been granted this by a gracious God that you would be taken through suffering. But then notice what he squeezes into the middle. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Christ. And if you just stare at that verse for a little while, something will happen. You'll begin to see that the word suffer gets smaller and smaller. I'm speaking metaphorically. Those of you who are puzzled by this. And the name of Jesus gets bigger and bigger. He mentions suffering once, but he refers to Christ three times. And you see, you see what he's doing. You see how his, his teaching is, is shaping them subliminally to think in a, in a particular way. Not so much to focus on suffering. You know it's possible to do that, to focus on suffering. The more we focus on suffering, the more we get lost in our suffering. The more our suffering produces suffering, the more our suffering is a mystery. He's saying, put your suffering, put it into the context of Jesus Christ, the great sufferer, the suffering servant who suffered for your salvation. See it connected to Jesus. See that you're able to say, Lord Jesus the reason for this in my life is because I belong to you, and I belong to your people. You see what encouragement that is, that this suffering is given to us through Christ, in Christ, for Christ, so that when we are able to say, to me to live is Christ, we're able to, we're able even to embrace that suffering, and say, Lord Jesus, produce in me through that suffering an increasing likeness to you, the suffering servant who became my Savior, and use use that. Use that among us as as we keep together in unity as a fellowship. 
that the world may be puzzled. The world may say, I don't understand why someone who is such a model person should go through that suffering. And the other thing I don't understand is how they can go through that the way they're going through it. It's not natural. No, says Paul, it's not natural. It comes from Jesus Christ. And he's saying, this is, this is what it means to live as a citizen. I'm to start reading uh, the trilogy by Richard Harris on Cicero, the great Roman orator, a series of three novels that some of you may have read. Don't spoil volumes two and three for me, but uh, it reminded me of, of uh, secondary school Latin and learning as a 12-year-old boy the names of all the different togas. Some of you have to suffer that. The togas, the Romans, well, you know, when you see these, you know, Caesar and all the rest of these funny garments, apparently quite uncomfortable garments. And there was a whole range of different togas if I remember rightly, there was the toga virilis, which you were allowed to wear once you were a young man. Uh, and there was the toga praetexta, which you could wear when you became somebody around town. And uh, there was the toga candida, the white toga, that you wore when you were a candidate for a political office. And there was the toga paeta, which you wore alone when you were a Roman general and you were given a, a triumph to ride into Rome in triumph with all the booty ahead of you. And they stuck a slave in the chariot with you who kept saying, homo es, remember you're just a man. All these different togas. And... Uh, when I came to the end of this, I thought, and yes, uh, if we are citizens in the empire of Jesus Christ, then we wear the toga Christi, the toga of Christ. And it means that we're united in the fellowship of His people, the unity for which He prayed. And it means that we're also united with His people, with the apostle and with Himself in this mysterious way in which He uses sufferings in our lives not only to sanctify us, but to make us fruitful. And so you see there are this, this empire in which we are citizens has its own laws, its own principles. And when we put on the toga of Jesus Christ, everything becomes different. And we're reminded every single day of who we really are, what our deepest identity is. To be able to say, I am a Roman citizen. For some of us to be able to say, I am Scottish. I was asked once by the president of the seminary in which I taught, have you become an American citizen yet? And I tried to control my emotions and quietly said no, and he dared to say why not, and the answer came out, because I'm Scottish. It really does make a difference. 
Ah, but this really makes a difference, doesn't it? To say, I'm Christ's. And it means, it means in the midst of all the confusion, you know who you are. You know whose you are. You know whose people you belong to. And you know that he is working in your life the way he worked in their life. The way he always works to make us more and more like Jesus. Well, let's seek tomorrow when we wake up in the morning, if we can remember, to say, all I wear today, the toga Christi, I'm His. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonder of Your Word. We, we thank You for the pleasures of studying it. We confess how how much we feel we only scrape the surface of it and that there is still so much more for us to learn. But you see our capacity. We can, we can only take in so much. And we thank you for what you do teach us and whatever you have been teaching us, what bits of this exposition you have specially shaped for, for my life as together we've listened to it, we pray that it may be, as these words originally were, means of huge encouragement to us to live more and more for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again and now reigns in heaven for our salvation. Hear us, we pray in His name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.